0: encourage you this morning to take your Bible, turn over to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, we'll talk about why we're there this morning. Today we're going to take a short break from the text in 2 Peter. We would have been in chapter 3 today, but I was going to preach this sermon at the end of the study, but since we are talking about false teachers, I thought that it would be important to clearly define as best I can what are the essentials of being a Christian And where is the line when crossed? You are stepping off into false teaching. Let's commit this time to Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and I pray for your servant who's preaching this word today. Help me in my weakness to to rely on your strength today. Your grace is sufficient. And I pray that as these words go out, there wouldn't be my words, but they would be your words. And it would have its intended purpose for each and every person in this room. If there's someone who needs to come to faith in Christ, that today would be the day that they would accept you as Savior. If today's the day we need encouragement, if we need conviction, challenge, whatever it is, we thank you for your word, that it can be sufficient to meet all of our needs. And we pray you would go forth today, and you would challenge us and help us to uh, see more of you through this message today. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know what I'm about to say won't satisfy everyone with these principles, but at least it can be a starting point for further discussion outside of sermon time. The danger of any sermon is that you can say too little about a particular topic and not have enough sources, and yet um, it's a daunting task to cover that subject in 35 minutes, but here we go, we're going to try. So I encourage you, your pens are going to fly, and some of these are things that we've talked about in our past, But in this context, I think these all, as I pulled them together, will fit well. First, I wanna address some constructive feedback I got from last week after my message, and it was very helpful. I mentioned Bethel Church in California and Reading that believed in grave sucking or grave soaking or mantle grabbing, as it's been called. And I did a lot of research as I was informed about this, that this was debunked by Bethel Church and their staff, but the evidence to support the debunking is still somewhat unclear. I leave it up to everyone interested to look at the full discussion from people on their staff and others who said it was merely a joke, but then there's pictures of staff members on the graves of, for example, C.S. Lewis and others, and so um, I leave it up to you to do more study and research on that. I also saw pictures on video of the glory cloud on the video and gold dust flowing down in the sanctuary, and staff members say that there's nowhere proof that that was staged, and so... It bears further investigation as to whether that was something God did or not, but I just wanted to hopefully give fair treatment to what I said last week about this being an example of false teaching, because we need to check all the facts when we uh, talk about these things. So the question is, who is a false teacher? Don't we all who teach sometimes say erroneous things? I do, and sometimes I've been uh, corrected, and that's good. Certainly. We have, but there's a difference between humbly admitting saying something wrong or wrong teaching and attempting to correct it versus someone who's willfully and purposely moving away from orthodox, historical, scripture-based doctrine and teachings for their own gain. According to a recent survey that came out a week ago Monday, or a couple weeks ago on a Monday in September, COVID has caused many people who are believers, not to be in person under the teaching of God's word. And as they attempt to grow themselves through uh, media choices on the internet, um, we found that many evangelicals began to take on doctrines that are similar to those in Americans at large who are not believers in Christ. So the first part in your outline here is that study. And I want to drive it home. But before we get into that, we need to define what is an evangelical Christian because these are the people that they surveyed. And according to the National Association of Evangelicals and according to Lifeway Research, and you could put that next one up on there, um, it talks about here are the things that make an evangelical Christian. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It's very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And then only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So I took that right from the NAE website so you would know what, who the people are that they're serving. So we here at Pleasant View Baptist Church, we go beyond that statement and we say that a true follower of Jesus Christ believes without reservation the five fundamentals of the faith. And we're going to talk about those on point number two in just a moment. But let's look at these findings that the Lincoln Year Ministries and Lifeway Research Group as they surveyed evangelicals. First of all, the findings are astonishing. In the background of the study, they found that 26% of evangelicals do not believe the Bible is literally true in 2022. In 2020, that percentage was 15%. You see the huge jump. 11% increase in just two years. And they said that personal religious belief is, quote, a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. That's a very dangerous statement right there. It shows that some evangelical Christians are getting their views of God from other sources in the secular culture and other religions rather than from the study of God's word. How we view God, I believe this with all my heart, how we view God and how we view sin will determine how we live our Christian life. Let me say that again, how we view God and how we view sin will determine how we live our Christian life. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, how you view God has everything to do with how you live out your life. Do you feel accountable to him at the end of life? And we can go on and on, breaking out the different characteristics of theology and the attributes of God. But every one of us, if we're honest, is a theologian. We have a view of God. We have our own worldview. And my hope and prayer for you is to be sure that you have a biblical-based worldview and a scripture-based and balanced view of God and all of his attributes. So here are the issues on your outline, the top five false beliefs of American evangelicals. Number one, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. Over half of evangelical Christians surveyed said they believe this to be true, that God accepts those outside of Christianity who are committed to their faith, that God will bring them into heaven. Jesus says, contradictory to that, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, the apostle said, and there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, that we might be saved. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's open. He's open for God so love the world, as we talked about. He's open for anyone to come, but come to him on his terms. And so that is universalism, the belief that all roads lead to heaven. We totally categorically uh, are against that. Second of all, Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. Can you believe 73% of evangelicals surveyed? Do you know that's what the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and other cults as well, that he was a created being? This is a form of Arianism, a popular heresy that arose in the 4th century A.D. This led to the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. to discuss and determine whether Christ was a created being or eternal and that he is God in the flesh. This council led to the Nicene Creed that said he was not a created being but was co Existing with God for all of eternity. And Jesus said this in John 14:9. He said, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me, us the Father? He had been with the Father. He left the very throne room of heaven. He was, as the Bible teaches, their creation. Performing the works that God gave him to do, along with the Holy Spirit. He is eternal. He always existed. Number three, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelical survey believe that. That's up 13% since 2020. In John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, and there's many scriptures we could point to, but Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And man, did that get him in a whole lot of trouble with the religious leaders. The Jews picked up stones to stone them. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. So let there be no dispute that Jesus claimed to be God in the new Testament, no doubt about it. And he is, he is God. The fourth one is the Holy Spirit. This one really took me back as a force and not a personal being. They don't believe the Holy Spirit is a person, that he's part of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that's a dangerous thing because in this world of new age, when I think of Star Wars, the force be with you. The Holy Spirit is far more than a force. He is a person. We could read verses where it says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Characteristics of a person. But in Acts 5, Peter said to Ananias, who lied about his offering, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse three, the Holy Spirit. Verse four, God. See the connection there? He is saying the Holy Spirit is God, is a person. Number five, human beings are not sinful by nature. This is a slow creep into into the evangelical world. 57% of evangelicals surveyed, 45% in 2020. So you notice the astonishing Gaps, how fast these heresies, false teachings are growing. David said in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And we have a myriad of scriptures that we can point to in Romans 5.12, how through Adam sin spread through the world and other places. So 68% of evangelicals believe they can grow on their own just fine without requiring someone to attend church regularly or become a member. In Hebrews 10, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we say in our church membership class, there are no orphans in the Christian life. We need each other in the local church to grow into maturity without deformity. You can grow on your own, but you miss out on a lot of things by not attending and being in person in a local church setting. So here's the application. How would you respond to someone who held one or more of these beliefs? This is why I point them out and I give you some ammunition, some resources, some means to have the discussion, to not confuse and be very clear what the Bible says and what Jesus is saying about these very important subjects. So that's the issue, but here's the answers. The answers, the primary and non-negotiable, let me emphasize that the non-negotiable doctrines of orthodox, historical, scripture-based doctrines. You see on the screen a picture of a Boeing 747 by British Airways. And you look at that, and there are some, that's a very, very complex machine with millions and millions of parts. But there are things you could take out of that plane and it would still fly, you could take all the seats out, you could even take the restrooms out, you could take the lights on the inside of the fuselage out, but you dare not put, take off one of the wings, you dare not, you make sure you have fuel pump to pump the fuel to the engines, right? There are some irreducible things that have to occur for that plane to fly. And so what are the foundational beliefs that should unite all of us who are true followers of Christ? Here are the five bedrock things that we should all agree on if we're a true follower of Christ. Number one, the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1.14, it says that God wrapped himself in human flesh, and came down and lived among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the one and only his word became flesh number 2 jesus was born of a virgin woman a virgin woman that's important because if he was born of a man he would have a sinful nature and he wouldn't be the unblemished lamb of god to go and die on the cross he did not have a sinful nature he was born of a virgin woman Prophesied in Isaiah 7 14, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Number three, Jesus shed blood, paid in full the debt of the world's sin. And we just talked about that in our communion time. Hebrews talks about without the shedding of blood, there is no N O forgiveness or remission of sin. Jesus shed blood, paid the debt in full for the world's sin. Fourthly, Jesus' body rose from the dead. He didn't spiritually rise. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe he came around 1914 after World War I in spirit. No, Jesus physically rose from the dead. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 15 and eyewitness accounts, that he appeared to the apostles first and to others, and then it says to at least a crowd of 500 people. It's pretty hard for 500 people to have a hallucinogenic experience. He physically rose from the dead. And fifthly, the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God and is the final authority for all faith and practice. These are the five fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so to deny any one of these five fundamental doctrines of the faith is to become a false teacher, clear and simple. Now we're going to talk in a few moments about some of the different denominations and the ways that people... Worship and have some different views, and we can agree to disagree. But Second Peter 2:1 says, "But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master, who died on the cross to pay the price for the sin. Bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." We could go deeper into these beliefs and the offshoots and ramifications of all these related doctrines of these five. But this is sufficient here to determine when someone moves into false teaching. I like what Augustine said. He says, all heresies are errors, but not all errors are heresies. I may err, but I shall not be a heretic. We can all make mistakes. It's what we do when we're held accountable for that wrong teaching that talks about whether we're headed to be a false teacher or not. Now, I want to be clear and careful here in defining the line that moves into false teaching. Stay tuned for the next point as we talk about the doctrines and teachings within the Bible, believing churches that we can agree to disagree on, and we need to work together to maintain our unity. The question, though, before we leave this point is, as a born-again believer in Christ, do you hold these basic doctrinal beliefs? These should define who you are in your relationship with God. The application here is make these the essential measurements, the essential measurements of true Christian doctrine as we consider the biblical teachings we consume. Because we're all consumers. I don't even know how many podcasts I listen a week, right? Some of you watch videos of all kinds of different people. Measure them up to these standards to see where they fall. So take your Bible if you haven't already, if you have it open, turn over to our scripture reading in Psalm 133. We stuck this kind of in the middle. Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. A beautiful Psalm, a very short psalm. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I point this out because the rest of the sermon is going to be talking about unity within the body. The oil, in verse 1, that's poured on Aaron's head, verse 2 actually, flowed down on his beard and shoulders and onto the breastplate with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The oil symbolizes the unity of the nation in worship under their consecrated priest. As the oil consecrated Aaron, so the unity of the worshipers in Jerusalem would consecrate the nation under God. A picture of biblical unity through the priest. In verse 3, David then compared the unity mentioned in verse 1 to the dew that covers the mountains. The picture of oil running down no doubt suggested dew coming down from Mount Hermon in the north onto Mount Zion. The dew of Hermon was heavy and it symbolized what was refreshing and invigorating. The refreshing influence of the worshiping community on the nation was similar to the dew on vegetation. This is a fitting symbol of the Lord's blessing on people of his who are united together, in this case, the nation of Israel. Jesus said this in John 17. Do you realize in this high priestly prayer in John 17, he was praying for us in the 21st century. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me in the future through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. One of the marks of Christians is the unity that we have and the love we have for one another and maintaining that unity. God's desire for his church family across the globe is to love one another and maintain the unity of the faith. The secondary and negotiable teaching within Orthodox, historical, scripture based Christian doctrines is this having said that, what I've said, there are many doctrines and beliefs among the numerous groups among Christendom where we can agree to disagree. We can disagree on doctrines that do not hinge on salvation and the other teachings of the five fundamentals of the faith. I believe these folks that we may agree to disagree with will all be with us in heaven and bring their own special spice and variety to heaven as well. But I'm certain of one thing. God's going to straighten out all of our theology once and for all. And we might be surprised at what he reveals to us about our beliefs And their beliefs. So, on the screen, I'm not going to read all these, but here's a sampling of some of the things that you see: tongues, healing, miracles, and prophecy. Some believe this is normative for today. Some believe that you know charismatic churches, Pentecostal, non-denominational churches, they believe in that. Others believe that in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about when the perfect one has come that these gifts have ceased, that they had a purpose until the canon of scriptures was put together. I'm not a cessationist. I believe God still can use these things. We can't put God in a box and that he can use these things today, maybe not as normative as they were in the New Testament. We have brothers and sisters who believe you can lose your salvation and come to faith again. We can read on and on here, talk about all these different things on the screen. But these are things that we can agree to disagree on but still work together in sharing the gospel of Christ. In Philippians chapter 1 verses 15 through 18, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He said, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul would say, "Hey, guess what? If they're preaching the gospel, maybe they've got false motives. Maybe they're self-centered. Maybe they got the wrong attitude, but guess what? If the gospel is preached, I rejoice." And then he says, "I say it again, I rejoice." The key here is to associate as churches, to fellowship with churches that agree on how the gospel is to be shared and to work together on common causes to be witnesses in the community to win people to Christ. We're not in competition with other churches. We're all part of the makeup of our communities to collectively serve the people in our community and share Christ with them. A beautiful expression of that is praise on the river where we have the churches coming together at Veterans Memorial Park on a Sunday afternoon sharing worship music for our community. Different styles of worship based on the culture make up the church and the personality of the church. So the application here is a quote from Augustine, and you've heard this before, but I have you write it down. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. But in all things, charity or love. Good reminder Because if we got nine of us Baptists in a room together and sat down and went through all these doctrines, we'd have nine different opinions probably on some of these lesser things. And that's okay. That we can have love in unity with one another. There's a third category for us to consider today. What do we do individually as Christ followers in the church where we have different convictions than someone else in the body of believers? Glad you asked that question. Let's look at that briefly. And we've talked about this before. The tertiary or third way to understand and handle differences of convictions and preferences based on God's word with the true followers of Christ. Take your Bible if you would. There's several places we could go, but we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You can look at Romans 14, Romans 15. There's lots of other places, but 1 Corinthians 8:7. 8, 8:7. 7. 8, 7. Paul's dealing with this issue in the Corinthian church of whether to eat meat offered to idols as Christians. Is it wrong to do that? And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, see the overarching timeless principle beyond this one issue. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscious being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We have liberty and freedom in Christ as believers. We can do anything as long as it doesn't violate scripture and it glorifies God. But the point is there's some things that we may do personally that we feel have liberty to do that may offend a weaker brother or a non-believer who's looking at us as a Christian or another believer. So we have to weigh that out in our decision whether to do certain things in public. So here's three things that we need to think about. Number one, command. Command is when God tells us to do something, he demands our obedience. There's no negotiation here. The Ten Commandments, okay? Put on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. James, he says, flee from the devil and the devil will flee from you. Commands of scripture, non-negotiable. But second of all, convictions. Convictions are God speaking to your heart through the Holy Spirit, about what you should or should not do in an area that is not a command, and the choice is determined based on principles of Scripture. Okay, when we say that the Bible speaks to everything, obviously the internet didn't exist, the movie theater didn't exist, but there are principles in God's Word that we can apply to all these things. And I don't have them up on the screen, but for example, my wife and I, we have a conviction of where movie ratings at what point do we not go you know, into the X and R and all those things? What is the limit for us? Everybody has to make those choices as a family, as a husband and wife. Media choices, alcohol consumption. Do you not consume any alcohol or do you consume it in moderation? The age for your teenagers to date. That's a big one, isn't it? And the whole purpose behind dating. Whether to homeschool. Or to send your kid to Christian school or to public school. Financial choices, you know, that's based on your convictions. Do you want to be debt free all the time? Do you feel like it's okay to have a car payment? Tattoos and piercings, that's a controversial thing. Some of our more stricter churches women wearing makeup or no wake up, makeup, skirts or skorts only, or pants for ladies. Co-ed swimming. I've been to some camps where they wouldn't let the guys and the girls swim together. Using face cards to play non-gambling games. Dancing. Fashion choices. Translations of the Bible to use. These are views that you and you and your spouse pray about, talk about, come to a decision about that are not imposed on other Christians and do not cause one to be judgmental of others who take a different conviction from you and your spouse. That takes maturity in the Lord. It's very easy to become pharisaical about our convictions and imposing them on others. But we are free in Christ, as I said, to do anything that honors God and does not go contrary to Scripture. But we're not to use our liberties to a point that it causes others to stumble or turn away from the Lord. The balance is if it's okay for you to have these convictions and you should not be judged for them. That's the tension that we have to live in. Here's some questions to consider in making your convictions. And if you don't get all these, just go to our website and we have the sermon manuscript um, there for you to download. But questions to consider in making your conviction. Does this activity or conviction we are developing honor God? Does it honor God? That's a good one to start off and ask. Second of all, will this build us up? and mature us in the faith. Will this mature us in the faith with this decision we make? Will doing this in public offend a non-believer who looks at us as a Christ follower, or offend a young believer or another believer who may have a different conviction than you in a particular matter? Those are important things to think about. Romans tells us that we do not live as an island to ourselves but yet we can't let other people control our lives. That's a delicate balance. And the last one would be at what do you laugh at? Is what we laugh at glorifying to the Lord or tearing someone down? Those are important things as you think about developing your convictions. And very quickly, preferences. Preferences are based on what you like or feel that will help you in your spiritual growth and worship of God. And this is where institutions, organizations, churches have preferences. They don't necessarily have scriptural foundations. You know, when you go to the military, and it's a volunteer military right now, guess what? You sign up for their rules. For the men, you're going to get your hair cut short. You're going to get up at a certain hour, Danny can tell you, and do physical training, right? They own you, and they own your schedule. And you agree to follow those preferences. When I went to Christian college at Liberty, we had to sign every year, sophomore, junior, whatever year, the Liberty Way. At that time, men could not have hair over their ears or on their collar. We were not allowed to go to the movie theater back then in the 70s. There was, uh, males were not allowed in female dormitories. You signed off, there were consequences if you did those things. Some examples, music styles and worship. What color the sanctuary would be. We can have plenty of different opinions on that. Um, Just think about chairs versus pews. What programs to have or not have in the church. The leadership in most cases make these decisions for you and you trust them because they are those in authority over you. We must respect the conviction and preferences of others. So our application is this, is we need to learn to agree to disagree with other Christ followers without judgment, but supporting one another in love. Okay? So we got one more point, and we'll go through it quickly. How to identify and respond to false teaching. How do you respond? And it is important that you understand those commands, those convictions, and those preferences, and understand how they interplay with one another and how we are to treat one another within the body of Christ. But now how to identify and respond to false teaching. First of all, examine to see if what the person is teaching is 100% in line with the word of God. And earlier in Second Peter, we went and referenced Deuteronomy 13. And those prophets, when they made a prediction, they had to be 100% accurate. Not like Jean Dixon back in the 60s when she got 56% right on what was going to happen in a year. They had to be 100% accurate. And if they weren't, if they didn't, then guess what? They took them out and stoned them to death. So we need to examine if what the person is teaching when they're quoting and using the word of God to be accurate. Second of all, ask the question to the one teaching. Who is Jesus? This is the most important litmus test that you can ask of someone who is teaching the word of God. Mark down 1 John 4, 1 through 6. 1 John four, one through six. John, the gospel writer, wrote this book also. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error great section to test the teachings of a person. Thirdly, be a Berean Christian. And we've talked about this numerous times. Acts 17.11 says that the Bereans, when they heard Paul preach, they took out the scriptures to make sure what he was saying was true. We need to be constantly Berean Christians. And fourthly, we need to get out from under the false teacher and the false teaching immediately. I talk to people who will tell me that their pastor is teaching false things, but they stay in the church to kind of be a missionary, to try to turn it back. But the Bible's clear what you should do when you're approached by someone from a cult. In 2 John 1, he says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Here's the key. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Leave immediately. Find another place. The application here is if a teacher does not teach or agree with the basic doctrines of our faith, We need to point out the error and find the orthodox, historic, scripture-based teaching of another group, another church. Our key thought as we close today is this. True followers of Christ must know the essential beliefs of the Christian faith in order to discern and live out that truth. We have to know the essential beliefs, as we've talked about. We have to be able to discern and live out that truth in our lives. I share these truths from the bottom of my heart as a pastor. My hope is that you will persevere in the truth no matter what comes your way. In 2 John 1.4, John said this, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. I hope that you are growing in your relationship with Christ, that this book is not a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts, but it's a love letter written to you to build that relationship with him. As we close, I want to just uh, have us all bow our heads and close our eyes and just think about this last question on your sheet. How can I learn in humility to agree to disagree with a brother and sister in Christ with different convictions and live in unity with them? I leave you with that today so that we can have good conversations but stay in unity and love with one another. Father, Thank you for these teachings today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that I believe you've clearly defined what our essential beliefs are. And that if we move beyond them, we move into the realm of false teaching. Help us, Lord, to be wise stewards of your word. Wise users of it as we communicate it with others. But also be discerning about the truths that we are hearing and putting into our lives as well. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.